Well, it is the season of Advent, and as we mentioned last week, it is a time of waiting and hoping, and believe it or not, it is also a time of darkness. This month we are working through Isaiah's prophecies that announce the Messiah's birth, and this morning we come uh, to Isaiah 7, which is one of the best known of Isaiah's messianic prophecies, and as we're going to see, God gives this sign to a wicked king in the midst of a very dark period of Israel's history, in fact, a, a period of her history that would only get worse after this sign was given. Well, again, we are in Isaiah 7. I'm going to pick it up with verse 10 and read all the way through to verse 25. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. And that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. And that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, part of this, this passage we're pretty familiar with, but probably most of it we are not. So I pray that you would bring clarity to me as I bring forth this word, because it is a good word. It's a hard word, even in the midst of the darkness that would come upon Judah and how much worse it would get for her. Still, you offer hope, and that hope is yourself. It's the same hope we have too, Lord, that in the midst of our darkness, which we all face, that you are with us that you are steadfast in your love and you will not let us go. So Lord, again, I pray you be with us as we meditate on this word, that it be good and useful for us in growing in our knowledge of how much you love us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for a long time, I have, uh, well, I've hated uh, expressions of Christianity that, that mimic or copy the broader culture, if not really trying to, in an attempt of some kind to be relevant to the broader culture. And I think you probably know what I mean. It's the sort of Christianity that shows up on t-shirts, 
or contemporary music of various kinds or hip hop music or really the, the, the cheap sentimental movies with dumbed down Christian themes, all of which you know, present themselves as a witness to the broader culture, but are really just appealing to a particular segment of Christianity that happens to like cheap sentimentalism and, and provides kind of an easy, quick moralism. And I know saying all this makes me come off as cynical, and maybe I am, uh, but I've seen the damage these things have done, and frankly, I don't mind speaking against them as often as I can. It's why, for example, uh, this church has never put out a T-shirt, and as long as I'm pastor, we never will. We've never had a branding scheme or, or bumper stickers or why, really, I am completely uh, resistant to having a bigger media presence. And I think my cynicism goes back to the slogan, slogan that seemed like it was everywhere uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. Jesus is the answer. Maybe you've seen that slogan. And whenever I see that, still to this day, I want to say, answer to what? And usually what counts as the answer is Jesus as a solution for the problems you're facing right now. So sad, depressed, worried, Jesus is the answer. Financial woes, marriage problems, disobedient children, Jesus is the answer. But you know, for those who actually know Christ, who've walked with him for even just a little bit, a moment's reflection will show that, that though you have Christ, you, you may still have a lousy marriage or a marriage that's in crisis. Though Christ is with you, though he, he indwells you, you may have a lifelong struggle with loneliness or anxiety or depression or some besetting sin that you feel like you just can't overcome. And so when people have been told Jesus is the answer and they face these things, they think he's not. He's not. And they've got it all wrong. So take, for example, Psalm 23, which is arguably the most well-known psalm in the Bible, certainly the, probably the most popular one among Christians today, and it presents life with God as a sometimes peaceful and quiet life. It says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Those are beautiful words. They're incredibly comforting words, and we do get to experience them from time to time. But that last line about leading us in paths of righteousness for, for God's own sake, well, it's a bit threatening to our autonomy and our desire for comfort and ease because the path he leads us on may not be a peaceful one. And it may be, in fact, quite dark and hard at times. And it may be that the path of righteousness he leads us down could be terrifying, like the path of living in the shadow of death, as he says in there, or learning to trust that he truly is providing for us and really is with us, though we are surrounded by enemies and threats or dealing with our sin or coping with a trauma, and it very well may, may feel like he is absent. The answer you see God offers to the world is never a quick fix. That's why I hate that slogan. It is never a quick fix. It is never a guarantee or a promise that things won't get worse. 
maybe even much worse, before they ever get better. It is not a formula to follow. It is not a recipe of steps. It's not a lever you pull or a protocol to be administered. No, you know, as, as Job learned, the answer is God himself. And he may or may not answer our deepest questions. He certainly didn't answer Job's, but he will answer us with his presence. Well, Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter seven is addressed directly to King Ahaz. And it comes after Isaiah's calling in chapter six, his famous calling in chapter six, in which Isaiah is caught up into the throne room of God in a vision. It's where the hymn, Holy, 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 uh, comes from. And he receives a commission from God to preach to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he is told that this calling will be frustrating, if not an, an utter failure. Isaiah will preach to those who will not listen, who won't heed his warnings, and Judah will eventually be overrun with Jerusalem, the capital, being razed to the ground and her people largely carried off as slaves. And those who remained, well, you read about them in the back half of our passage, and it's not pleasant. And this eventually happened in 586. But as chapter 6, verse 13 says, though the days may be dark, even so, God still offers hope to this you know, willful, stiff-necked people. There, there will be a remnant. God will keep his promise. Even though Israel can't keep theirs, God will keep his promise and all is not lost. Well, chapter 7 offers that same hope, but in a striking way. The first nine verses of chapter 7, which we, we did not read, reference the time when the northern kingdom of Israel and Again, just history lesson here. Remember, directly after Solomon's reign, the people of God split. They split between the northern kingdom of Israel, which is sometimes called Ephraim. It's called Ephraim in our passage here. And the southern kingdom of Judah, which is centered on Jerusalem and Syria, or you might think of them as the, the Philistines. They rose up against Judah and they, they tried to conquer her. And this was the second time this had happened during Ahaz's reign. Now, if you read the accounts about Ahaz, because I'm assuming you read this passage, you don't know anything about this guy. If you read about him in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, well, the picture you get of this man is not just an, an unfaithful king. I mean, all of us are unfaithful. You could certainly say that of David at, at certain points but rather an incredibly wicked king who openly rejected the God of Israel. So for example, Ahaz not only enabled child sacrifice in the Valley of Hinnom right outside of Jerusalem, and this is the very same place that came to be known in the first century during Jesus' time as Gehenna. It was basically a garbage dump that was always on fire and it was the very place that, that Jesus used as a vivid illustration to describe what hell is like. That same valley, six, 700 years previous to that, was the place where Israel would go outside the city to sacrifice their children. And Ahaz led the way. He led the way with his own sons. And he intensified the worship of Canaanite gods like Baal throughout all of Judah and even went so far as refashioning the temple 
to reflect the worship of the Philistine gods in Damascus. So what's so telling, this is incredible, what's so telling about Ahaz is that he reshaped the temple after he had been conquered by the Philistines. So in other words, he thought the gods in Damascus, presumably you know, the same gods Yahweh had humiliated when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 5, he presumed that those, they were superior to his own God. And it's, it's very similar, for example, to how many people leave Christianity because they find it uh, unacceptable to current standards of rationality or sexual ethics or, or whatever. But his goes far, far worse than that. And, and despite his heinous rejection of God, God assured Ahaz that not only will the most recent kind of encroachments or threats coming from the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, would they fail? And they did. God was going to wipe out Ahaz's enemies in 65 years' time, despite his political reliance on Tiglath-Pileser, which was the king of of Syria, or of Assyria mentioned in our, our passage today, which that political alliance in itself was a terrible rejection of God. So follow with me now. Ahaz, we can't just say he's not a good guy. He's not just a half-hearted, faithless king. No, he's wicked in every sense of that word. He was purposely set against God, and he led his people to do the same. And what is so remarkable to me, and I, I think I will probably overly repeat this throughout the sermon. I don't care. It's just remarkable to me, is that in the context of this incredibly wicked king who did not hesitate to openly flaunt his presence and trust for other gods, and in turn sought out these political alliances with other wicked kings, that the true God who had been providing for him and propping him up all along gives him an unbelievable sign. To that guy, he gives an unbelievable sign. Well, God's word to Ahaz, despite everything Ahaz had done, was, listen, I will conquer your enemies. You don't need to fear them. Trust me. I mean, that's, that's basically verses three through nine. So even though Ahaz clearly had abandoned God, God had not abandoned him. In fact, he says in there, I am your God. Even when Ahaz says, no, you're not. God is like, yes, I am. And and still, even so, he promised Judah life. All Ahaz needed to do, this is all he needed to do, was just listen. Just listen and trust that God would do it. And this, of course, is no different from any other character in the Bible. It's no different than what we face too. I mean, that same choice to listen and trust God was put to Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, you. Will Ahaz listen? Where will he place his trust? Well, beginning in verse 10, where we started our reading, God spoke to Ahaz again, and he gave him permission to ask for a sign. And God was essentially saying at this point, listen, I know you doubt me. I know that. I know you have rejected me for other gods. It's pretty obvious. Even so, I'm still faithful to my people. So ask for a sign for me to prove that I'm faithful. And tell you what, you can ask for the biggest, craziest sign you want. That's nuts. That's nuts. I can't believe God says this. It's like what people tried to do to Jesus in his ministry, and he called them out on it. 
know, Jesus, they would say, if you are truly the son of God, if you are truly the Messiah, then do something incredible. Turn this stone into a loaf of bread and do something that, that definitively removes all my doubts about you, something I can't question. People still do this, by the way. And it's always a mistake. It's always a mistake to ask God to prove himself because it makes us out to be the judge of whether God is actually God or not. That means we're setting the standard or, or, or whether what he says is trustworthy or not. And no human, no human can act as judge over God. We could hardly do it over each other. But here, God gives Ahaz permission to do this very thing, to come up with a, a hoop, so to speak, for God to jump through to prove to Ahaz's satisfaction that God really is who he claims to be, and thus his word about the future is trustworthy and good. But Ahaz won't do it. He won't do it. And on a surface reading, Ahaz comes across as pious, saying he won't test God. But really, it's, it's not pious at all. It's, it's further evidence of his unfaithfulness. I mean, if you think about it this way, when, when God came to Solomon and said, ask of me anything you want, Solomon didn't say, oh God, I can't do that. He said, great, here's what I asked for. May I have wisdom, because I don't know what I'm doing. Here, Ahaz has a similar opportunity that God is saying, listen, I'm opening myself up to you, Will you take it? And he says, no, I won't. It's evidence of his unfaithfulness. I mean, what if God confirms, for example, the sign and shows just how wrong Ahaz has been? What then? I mean, after all, Ahaz has perpetually sought out other gods. I mean, even sacrificing his children to them. What would it mean if this God proved to his satisfaction that he was right? Well, he will gladly seek out words from those false gods, prophets, he will gladly put those gods to the test because he trusts them. And we read that because of Ahaz's reaction here, God just says he's weary. He is so weary of this lack of trust. And it's not just Ahaz. It's most of David's lineage that has repeatedly chased after other gods, including at times both David and Solomon. God had promised David that his lineage would rule forever and showed just how glorious that rule could be through Solomon. But you know, time and again, David's sons, his lineage, generation after generation, just chose other gods. Even so, if Ahaz couldn't be bothered, think about this now, if he could not be bothered to take God up on his offer of a sign, God said, fine, I'll give you one. I'll give you a sign. And here's what verse 14 says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, miraculous births were always a big flashing neon sign that God was acting in a mighty way. So, you know, for example, God confirmed his promise to redeem the world through Abraham, through what? Miraculous birth with, with Isaac. God brought forth Samuel, the prophet Samuel, through his similar uh, miraculous circumstances with his mother Hannah, as he did with the birth of Samson, even as he did with John the Baptist through his mother Elizabeth. And all of those births came from women who were, who were barren. It was life out of death, an oasis in the desert. It's a, a pattern that God intentionally established as a sign over and over again that God alone would bring forth the one who would redeem the world, and that he would do it when all of life feels like a desert, 
when it's all darkness, when it's barrenness and even just death, Israel was supposed to notice this pattern and pay attention that not only a Messiah-type figure would be coming, but that God's promise to redeem the world was still moving forward despite Israel's unfaithfulness. But the sign given to Ahaz, well, it goes well beyond what had come before. And it wasn't just a miraculous birth, though obviously it's that. It was what seemed like an impossibly nonsensical birth. How can you have a child without a father? And with this child, you see, God would move well beyond Eden, the tabernacle, the temple. Through this child, he would dwell with his people in a way not previously imagined. Now, to be sure, it was hinted at leading up to this, but they could not have imagined this. And we are told that the son would be named Emmanuel, which I'm sure you know means God with us. So despite the darkness of Ahaz and Judah's sin, God doesn't just promise to remain faithful. He promises to get even closer to his people. So let's just think through this in terms of the biblical timeline. Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence. They knew him so well, they could recognize him by his footsteps. Think on that. But by their sin, they lost face-to-face communion with him. Abraham knew God's presence too, but again, limited. Moses enjoyed God's presence. And in turn, Israel, as they experienced the Shekinah glory that, that led them through the wilderness and set it on the tabernacle and then later on the temple. And all of that is huge. I can't imagine what they took in. But even so, the promise that we read here is an order of magnitude different. See, throughout the Old Testament, sometimes God did appear to people as a human. Sometimes he dined with them like he did with both Abraham and again with Moses and the elders of the people on Mount Sinai. And sometimes, you know, people had visions of God or were given limited access to his throne room like like Isaiah did in chapter six. But this promise, it goes far beyond all of that. God will choose to dwell with his people as a human. That's the sign of his faithfulness. That's the sign that he will bring about the renewal and redemption of the world. We just use John 1 as our profession of faith. I mean, think through it. The creator God of the universe, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the one through whom God rules over all things will share in our humanity. He will completely condescend to us. That's a good thing. He's coming to meet us at our level. He will completely sympathize with us. He will be able to suffer or to weep or to laugh or to arm wrestle or to enjoy a good steak. For God so loved the world, he so loved Israel and even wicked Ahaz that he promised to dwell forever with humanity through his son who permanently permanently now, took on flesh. See, Jesus right now is fully God and fully man. So the Jesus whom we worship, who is at the right hand of God the Father, is just as fully human as you and I right now. With his resurrection and his ascension to the throne of God, he did not cut loose of his humanity. No, he chose to permanently be God in just this way. He's, for example, the son of man of Daniel 7 who is worthy to receive worship as a human. 
alongside the Ancient of Days, and he is interceding for us. That means he's praying for you right now by name. God so sympathizes, he so cares for his people, so loves them that he promises to be with them as one of them. So instead of, which would be what I would want to do when encountering an Ahaz or a Judah, instead of shying away from that darkness, like I don't want any part of that, he leans into it and promises to be even closer. And this sign is so astonishing, it's so mind-boggling, that I can't rightly describe the magnitude of it. It's like saying the ocean is really big, you know, or the universe is pretty large. Well, yeah, it's so big, so beyond our comprehension that it just fails to register to us. Now, remember, God told Ahaz he could ask for any sign he wanted. It didn't matter how crazy or how outlandish that sign would be. He could ask for anything, and when he refused, this is what God decided to give. So in other words, to God, humanity, in all our sin, all our brokenness, all our unfaithfulness, all our messiness, all our junk, all our rejection of of our God is completely worth saving. And it's not simply that he's he's saving a, a piece of artwork from the fire so he could put it back on his wall and observe it from time to time. No, the purpose of salvation is so that he may live with us. It's that he may live with us. And when does he announce this sign? When Israel is at their high point? No, the very opposite. When they are so down the rabbit trail of wickedness and evil when his people are in this dark, ugly, and very dangerous place. And to be sure, it would get much worse before it gets better for them. But as as Job learned, God always offers hope in the midst of darkness, not by offering answers, but by offering himself. Again, you know, if you are familiar with the flow of the Bible, God has actually been building towards this sign and this promise for a long time. God promised an offspring to Eve that would redeem the world, but he gave her no detail on who that would be or when that person would show up. God offers more details to Abraham when he promised that his offspring would become a nation through which God would redeem the world. But Abraham never saw that. He never saw that that nation come into fruition. Generations later, so this is hundreds, thousands of years just passing by. Moses witnessed God lead what was now a nation out of Egypt, but Moses didn't see that nation inherit the land. Generations later after that, God promised to David that his lineage would always occupy the throne, but more so that the one who would rule over all things would rule over a never ending kingdom and that that man would come from his line. David never saw that happen, especially as Solomon, who held so much promise and started out so well, failed in such spectacular fashion. If Solomon can't get it, nobody can get it. And now generations after that, Ahaz. To Ahaz, a man who had led his people far from God, God says that this redeemer will be God himself, born of a virgin, born as fully God and fully man. 
And of course, Ahaz did not get it. He didn't get it. I don't think he even cared. And arguably, no one could really take stock of this sign until they saw it happen. I mean, even the disciples who were eyewitness to to crazy, right? To what they, they could take in. They misunderstood Jesus over and over again until after he was resurrected. But as I've been hinting at throughout this sermon, the thing I can't get over is that God gives this sign, this promise to such wickedness. It goes against everything I tend to think. You see, the thing is, this sign was as much good news as it was bad for Ahaz. I mean, God was saying, listen, despite your wickedness, Ahaz, and your lack of faith, I'm going to make good not only my promise to protect you, which he did from the immediate attacks that they were facing, I'm giving you, you, Ahaz, even more detail about the person I've been promising since Eve. But even as, as Ahaz hears the gospel, he hears this incredible news, he doesn't believe it. He had eyes, but he could not see, ears, but could not hear. So even though God told Ahaz that he would both protect him in, in the immediate future, but more so re-upped on the promise to redeem the world, dwelling with his people in a way they could not have imagined, Ahaz doesn't believe God, and God knows it. You know, it's like the thought that often crosses my mind when I hear all these various artists covering, you know, Advent and, and, and Christmas hymns. You know, I'll sometimes stop to think, do you, do you understand what you're singing? Do you understand the content of the words that are coming out of your mouth right now? Do you realize what joy to the world is really about? Do you even care? See, Ahaz couldn't be bothered because he had put his trust elsewhere. That's why the promise of judgment immediately follows the sign. God will not bring forth this child in Ahaz's lifetime, which is a pattern too. All that, that Bible history we ran through, they did not see the fulfillment in their lifetime. In fact, this Messiah, this child won't show up for hundreds of years to come. The Messiah won't come until after all of Judah had gone through a really, really desolate time. That's why you know, I took the time to read verses 15 through 25. Maybe when you're reading through, you're like, this is not what I was expecting. Exactly. <laughs> Those verses are descriptive of the time when Judah will be laid to waste, when people are forced to eat the poor food of curds, that is thickened milk and honey. And, and this, this desolation, this darkness will initially come from the very political power Ahaz had put his trust in the king of Syria, Tiglath-Pileser. And it turns out when, when you, you show a world power, you've got a bunch of money, well, eventually he will come to take it. And that's the way you got rich in the ancient world. So you, you just took it from other people. So Tiglath-Pileser said, thank you very much. Now, as a quick aside, this, this is also a picture of how idolatry works. What we think will bring us life that thing that seems so relevant to our immediate crisis, to our immediate needs, that thing we think we must have right in this moment, it actually brings us death in the long run. And again, here's what I find so compelling and so incredible about this passage of Scripture. God promises himself. It's not a lever. It's not a recipe. It's not a formula. It's not a promise for like, listen, 
I'm going to give you five steps and your marriage is going to get fixed, y'all. No, he says it's going to get worse. But I'm with you in the midst of it. And that is the hope of Advent. And that is what we mean when we say Jesus is the answer. At least it's what I hope we mean. Rankin Wilburn used to say that temptation is acting on the opportunity to walk away from God. Do you get that? Temptation is acting on the opportunity to walk away from God. And temptation is, is giving into the thought or the feeling or the desire that you know, God is not quite relevant. He's not quite relevant enough for the needs of the moment. He's not fixing my immediate problems. So I need to go where I can find relief or release where my desires and my needs can be met right now. I need help right now. And despite, you know, how materially prosperous our times are, and they are, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to break faith. It's easy to turn to the false kings of this world or to bow our heads to the tyranny of the urgent. It's, it's easy to think that, that God is not nearly enough for us, even as we are on an intellectual level. We say, yes, of course, we trust him. And belonging to God, it does not guarantee our suffering will immediately stop. It just doesn't. Or that our lives will be graphed as a continual upward trajectory or that whatever we picture as the good life will actually happen. I'd be willing to bet if I just started doing polling just among you, you'd say none of these things have really ever happened for me, as good as your lives may be. In fact, as the world counts success, your life probably won't measure up at all and may even end with a whimper. It's telling that even for those who do measure up to this ridiculous notion of success, they are often the most unhappy people you'll find. You know, the sign God gives to Ahaz is a forward-looking sign. It's forward-looking because your moment you're in is really hard. It is the promise of a better future that nobody other than God can bring about, and it's life with him. So if you are expecting in some way, you know, God to make your life into the American dream of kind of a pain-free, pursue your desires wherever they lead sort of life, or, hey, man, God's going to fix all these problems I've got, then you've misunderstood the gospel. Jesus is not that answer. He's just not. What God promises is not the removal of pain necessarily. Sometimes he does. Or a quick fix to what ails us now. Sometimes he does, but many times he does not. Now that will happen eventually one day. But it may be a long time before that happens. Now believe it or not, his promise is to be with us in the darkness. And you have to question or you have to ask, is that what I really want? Or is that really the answer I'm looking for? See, as Christians, our hope is centered on the outlandish notion that God has given his son born of a virgin in a backwater town in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. And this man who is called Yeshua, that is Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, and a host of other names that he is actually setting this world right. And he actually knows us by name, no matter what our circumstances or what the news may indicate. Though the world, you know, like Ahaz, cannot see this, or hear this, though they may take us for fools, even as they, they celebrate our holy days and sing our holy songs, we, 
We trust in the God who delights in us, even as we are admittedly slow to learn. We're slow to learn to walk in his ways. And the temptation, of course, is to despair in that darkness. That's really what I've been driving to this whole time. The temptation is to despair in the darkness. It's to not trust that God is with us in the midst of our sin. That's important. In the midst of your sin or your suffering or your shame. But he's there. He leans in. I promise. That's not me promising. That's him. That's him. Now I'll close then with the familiar words of Longfellow. It's beautiful words that in my mind sum up Advent so well. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, the temptation that I think most of us face on a regular basis is to think you are not there. You are not with us. You are not the most relevant thing to my life. Lord, I know I face this every day. So Lord, I pray for us that you would continue to work in us in our hearts and our minds. And as we've been learning on Sunday evenings, that we would learn to see not how good we are, because we're not, but how much you love us and you care for us, and how deep that love really goes. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.